0: Hey, today's show is sponsored by The Optimist at the platform in Culver City. Go say hi to Joey and David over there, my buddies who own the place. And uh, you get some of the coolest gear, incredible clothes, lifestyle. You can't beat it. Go there, mention my name, get 20% off uh, The Optimist LA. Today's guest on the deal, Michael Arnold. Michael's the executive chairman at NIA Capital, commercial real estate brokerage. He focuses on a tenant rep uh, he's a tenant rep for 25 years, done some of the biggest, uh, most interesting deals. Also was a uh, great athlete in high school and college and played a little pro. Me and him grew up together, so we get into our competitive, uh, our competitive uh, games that we had growing up and kind of how sports influenced us both. But I really hope you enjoy this. We get into commercial real estate, his career, what it takes to make it as a broker and applying sort of the, the disciplines of sports into business, you can find Michael on Instagram at m p as in Paul, a as in Apple, Baller One, M P A Baller One. You can find him also at N A I Capital. You can always find us at Danny Brown L A or the Deal Pod on Instagram. And please leave us a comment on YouTube or Apple or Spotify wherever you listen to your podcast. School is in session. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Deal. Today's guest, Michael Arnold. How you doing, Michael? Welcome to The Deal. Thank
1: you, Danny, for having me. I appreciate it. Longtime follower. You do a great job.
0: Hey, I appreciate it. Good to see you. For those that don't know, Michael Arnold's a top commercial broker in the office tenant uh, lease space. And uh, beyond that, we're going to get into his career and his story. But we have so much personal backstory uh and so many touch points in our lives that i wanted to start with the personal stuff this time and then we could get into the commercial market what's going on with office and tenants and what's going on uh, in the market overall and your career story but i wanted to get into a special topic and and i'll give people some context so michael and i've known each other since elementary school we went to warner together we played ball at Chevy hills park together uh you went to crossroads were a star athlete there when i was at uni You went to UC Davis. Uh, I went to UC Irvine before I transferred to USC. So we've had a lot of similar paths in terms of being uh, athletes growing up. And we had a lot of rivalries. It was the Eddie Gentry, Michael Arnold Steelers versus the Jay Walker, Danny Brown Chargers at Rancho Park for the championship, which we won, by the way. I hope you remember that. You're probably still heartbroken. But the reason why I want to get into this is um, you're now a father of four kids, right? Three girls, one son. Is that right? Yeah. That's four. And they're all student athletes, stellar student athletes. So what I wanted to jump into, because it's sort of a hot topic, is you know, you guys, you and your wife have obviously done a stellar job with your children in terms of creating these hardworking student athletes, and they've been very successful. Your daughters have all won city championships, your son won a city championship, they're all basketball players like you. So I want to jump into that world. What is it like being a parent? Of a uh, serious athlete, you were a serious athlete growing up, but now you're got the payroll. What is that like in balancing school, balancing priorities, the pressures? Kind of just speak to that. Any, you can take it in any direction you want.
1: Right. So um, I was fortunate to be. People are like, "Oh, you're a Crossroads. You played with Baron Davis." And I'm like, "I appreciate you thinking I'm that young." But um, <laughs> we actually won the first state championship at Crossroads back in 1987, 88.
0: Yes, it's yes. crazy,
1: right? <laughs> Um, and then I had the good fortune or opportunity to play at UC Davis, um, played, went to school there. I was on the five-year plan. Um, and then I had the opportunity to go play professionally in Israel after that for a few years. So when I came back from Israel, I was like, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And then I will get into the, how I got started in the business. But I think having that type of background. Um, when I had children or my wife and I had children and she likes to say there's a lot to own in this world. Um, I think for me, first and foremost, I think athletics is a great tool for life experience. You need to learn how to balance responsibility with academics. You have to be a good athlete, obviously to compete at a higher level. And it also is a mechanism to keep you out of trouble, so to speak, and hanging out with the wrong people in high school and whatnot. So I always thought that I want my kids to experience very as many different sports as possible. Right. So the one thing I knew I didn't want my kids to do is play tackle football because CTE and just yeah. too many. You end night up like me. Exactly. <laughs> You know, ESPN did that special where they had like 30 X NFL guys and only one allowed them, allowed their kids to play tackle football. The rest were playing golf, tennis, things of that nature. But I do think it's important in today's world as you start talking about athletes um, to have them experience as many different, you know, types of sports, whether it's football, baseball, soccer, basketball, lacrosse, whatever that may be, right? Um, So they get different feelings to what they're, they're passionate about, what they like. My kids all happen to follow down my path. And so, I'm very disciplined when it comes to my work. I'm very disciplined when it comes to athletics, and that kind of had a trickle down effect on my kids. So, from that standpoint, you know, my son kind of led the way as the first kid. Like he won the first city championship at Overland Elementary School. <laughs> it's crazy when you start looking at that, and then he goes through middle school. People telling him he wasn't very good, or he everyone's not not saying he wasn't very good but downplaying like what the prototypical kid they think should be good is he gets to high yeah. school probably should have been on jv his freshman year starts fresh off doesn't make varsity to his junior year where he gets called up his sophomore year ends up starting on varsity his junior year and his senior year they win the first city championship in 51 years right i was there you were <laughs> there that's it. right i really appreciate you being there
0: that was awesome. Um, you know, I would miss it. That was a lot of He fun.
1: played against Mikey Williams, a kid who was like going to be an NBA guy. He dropped 100 points or 90 points in the yeah. high school game as a freshman. LeBron's at my son's game.
0: Yeah, a line they, of people you know, outside the gym. Outside goes the waiting, LeBron's right? Area.
1: It was crazy. Yeah. And then my son had an opportunity um, as a preferred walk-on at my alma mater. But with COVID, they had to pull the offer. And they had a bunch of Division three offers. And so with COVID coming, he basically decided – He was just gonna you know do a gap year and did a year of prep school and so after doing the year of prep school he didn't get the offers that he wanted and i told him i go how you're being recruited is how you're perceived so if you think excuse me you're a division one athlete and you're not getting recruited division one there's a there's a reason and so if you saw the auburn game last night right georgia alabama georgia Georgia, game last night Yeah, Stetson's a walk on for God's sake. Yeah, he yeah, just team to a national championship. Right. So you have to use that as fuel to have a chip on your shoulder. And whether that translates to sports, school, business, right? right. We're competing and I compete with your father-in-law on a daily right. basis. Right. Right. On opportunities. Another overlap that professional it's you know, professional courtesies. And you always profess to do what I do well, not what I think other people don't do well, while there's not a lot of people in our industry that operate that way necessarily. Right. And hey, it's I got this opportunity, you're going to get the next type of thing, but you have to operate with a little bit of a chip on your shoulder where people are going to tell you you're not going to be successful, you can't do things. And it's like, I, I don't really care what you tell me, I just know what I'm able to do. So my son's at a JC this year where he's a playing a starting point guard right now on a top 20 team in the state. My daughter, and I'll get through it really quickly so we can get through this. But my oldest daughter had 13 offers to play college basketball. Wow. I mean, she was the type of kid that literally would come home from a two-and-a-half-hour day of practice and go work out in the backyard for another two hours. Just the motor. Just 100%. <laughs> yeah. And people knew that. So COVID hit, and like many children, and hopefully wow. your kids didn't go through this, but I know a lot of ones that did. that did, Um there were some mental issues, not negatively, just figuring out, do I want to be defined as a basketball player? Do I want to expand my life? What do I want to do? Yeah. And I was like, I just want you to be happy. Right. Yeah. That's all we want for our children to be happy. So she decided that she was going to move on and not play sports. And NYU coach called her and literally was like, you're gonna be an all-American and help us win a national championship yeah. all the way at the division three level. And I'm like, are you kidding me? The relationships, which yeah. you and I talked about earlier, that's the key to anything we do in our industry, right? right. It's relationships. Yeah. Going back to we've known each other since elementary school, for goodness yeah. sakes, right? Yeah. yeah. So I look at it like it's relationships, but she just wanted to pause and go you do her thing. And like, then I have my twins who are now juniors at Pali. And they have three offers already after their sophomore years to go play college basketball. And it's up to them how hard they work and how much better they want to get and give themselves an opportunity to be successful. So, you know, I've been coaching the kids. You and I talked about AAU ball and club ball. Yes. Challenges, pros
0: and cons.
1: Man, it's really important to be with somebody who's not telling you what you want to hear, but telling you what you don't want to hear. Right. Yeah. It's like, the truth. I've had co- co- coaches tell us, "Oh, your kid is this, that, and the other," and you believe the hype, or you're like, "I'm pretty much a realist. I'm not like the dad goggles." Like, mm-hmm. and my son uh, is he a five, four-star, three-star athlete, and that that level, probably not, but doesn't mean he can't be. No, how hard do you want to work? It's like our yeah. industry. If you just assume you're going to do business and you're not working to develop relationships and developing opportunities. Um, It's not like I'm sitting looking at my phone, hoping it's going to ring, right? I have to reach out to people and develop those relationships. So I think there's a big carryover in what we do and dealing with parents and coaches. And there's a lot of relationships I cultivated through coaching through parents, right? And business opportunities, I'm sure you see with your kids in baseball. Um, But I think the most important takeaway that I took or I've had and my wife has taken is that athletics is a great you know a vehicle for what life really is you're going to have success you're going to have failure how do you adapt to that failure do you just take your head in the sand do you figure out what you did wrong how do you improve and so for me athletics were always a vehicle of for for life like it's a great example for it so to the extent you can get them to adapt it like my my daughter said to me last night and i was touched by it she got home like at midnight And she was like dad and i had her send me her pin so i knew where she was she goes dad you have no idea how many parents don't care where their kids are at night and you want to know where i'm at i just want you to know i love you and i appreciate you for that (laughs) i mean that like as a parent resonated
0: yeah that's what's important that's what's important all right so you've covered a lot of ground here and there's a lot to unpack and before we move off into the real estate conversation because this is so relevant and a hot topic. I mean, there's a lot of things. I, obviously, you and I have a very similar experience growing up with sports. And yes, it impacted who we are and the work ethic, the discipline, the mindset. Sounds like you were able to pass that on to your kids, but your kids had to want it. You can't force your kids to want it. And a club coach or AAU program or any high profile, uh, you know, academy can't, Teach your kid to want it, and they can't teach your kid to be a natural beast, four or five star athlete. Uh, right. That's all got to become that's all <laughs> got to come within, um, which is what I'm hear you. I hear you saying, and I, I think it's really important. And I'd like to hear your view. I think it's really important to, to support your kids if they want it, but to not force it if they don't, and because it's just going to backfire. There's so many other things going on in their lives. I've seen 100%. so much. I've seen so much of that and and it sounds like even for you you had uh, your daughter, oldest daughter who was a, like a superstar, decided you know what I've, I've done it and I've, I've had enough. I don't even want to play in college. So that happens too, and you got to give your kids space because regardless of where they end up, it's the lessons and the relationships from sports which shape both of us. But we know like if you've put in that time through youth and high school, you've got the, you've got the discipline and, you know, you've got the lessons learned. So uh, it's just, it's, it's a shame because you see so many people taking it the wrong way and uh, coaches pushing certain things, travel ball stuff. And everyone thinks their kids going D one and getting drafted when 99% point nine are not. And I think, you know, what's parents-
1: interesting Danny is that and I don't know if you know this fact and the only reason, cause my kids are now two of them are in college. 7% of student athletes play at the next level. Seven. Seven. That's it. Of high school. Whether it's NAI, JC, Division 3, 2, 1, whatever it is, 7%. So understanding that you have that 7%, it's a privilege to be and have the opportunity, let alone be playing at that next level. And then have the opportunity after that, my son had an opportunity to go play professionally in Israel um, after his prep year. And I said, why would you do that if you have an opportunity to go to college and continue to develop yourself and have that experience and then go after college like I did and then live overseas and enjoy that if that's something you really want to do? What I think a lot of kids do is they try and do things to make their parents happy. And the biggest issue is making sure that It's not about us, it's about the kids and making sure they're happy. Like my daughter, one of my twins is taking up this infinity of playing the guitar and just loves music. And I'm like, then you need to follow that passion as well. You just don't have to play basketball. Can you do your, are you practicing your guitar, right? Are you going in the backyard, working on your ball handling and your shooting? Okay, so anything you're gonna do that you're passionate about, you have to put work into. And I think that's the biggest takeaway for me is whether it's travel ball and that's a whole different level, right? Because you're spending your entire weekend in a gym or on a baseball field for that matter. God, I mean, you're driving all over the world, right? And spending three hours-
0: We've been trying to stay away from that at this point. We haven't dove all in, but a lot of our friends are, and I know it's
1: consuming. You don't need to anymore. do it at a young age either. I mean, I honestly believe, like my son started doing travel ball probably in fourth or fifth grade, just because his friends were doing it and we were involved. But had it had that not been available, I probably would not have even started him until probably middle school. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. he's playing soccer and playing flag football and playing you know baseball to the point where he didn't like playing anymore. And I said, Look, is whatever you start, you have to finish, right? That may be an old school mentality. But I'm like, if we're starting something, and we're midway through the season, and you're not having success, or you're not happy, we're going to finish the season, and you're going to do everything to the best of your ability to finish it out. And you don't have to do it again. Yeah. But once you start something, you got to finish it.
0: Yeah. So yeah, sports is the great metaphor for life. And I wholeheartedly uh, see it the same way you do. It's like a whatever you're going to do, whatever you want to be good at, whether it's sports, whether it's arts, whether it's, you got to put in the work and take it mm-hmm. seriously. And it's not just sports uh, before we get off this, I wanted to r- remind us cause this is incredible. So your two daughters, th- your twins, your youngest daughters are twins. They're juniors or yeah. seniors now at Pali juniors. They're juniors. They've just won their third city championship in a row. Is that correct?
1: My Nine-tenth, eldest 11th. daughter, Sammy won three in a row. The twins have won two in a row. Uh, and on top of that, wow. I didn't mention this for my girls, they all went to Paul Revere. They were the first public school team to win a middle school championship with all private school schools, Winward, Oaks Christian, harvard Wesley. my daughters. And the twins are the only freshmen on the team at that time. Yeah. And ironically enough, of that team that played in seventh and eighth grade, they have four girls on that team that are playing Division One basketball
0: now. Yeah. Incredible. So what an incredible experience they've had. All right, so we're going to turn the page and get into the Michael Arnold story. So yes, you were a superstar athlete and uh, grew up on the west side, went to college. And at some point, start the, the dream was over. You weren't going to go right. play with Magic, and you weren't going to play with Kobe. And that you know, the, and then it was time to get figure out what you wanted to do. So t- walk me through how you got into the real estate business and right. got to be doing commercial real estate. Well, I'll tell
1: you one little story that's interesting. I actually did play with Magic. At Well, UCLA and at the Forum, which was amazing. This is kind of an anecdotal story, but I met Irvin playing at the sports club. And okay, before yes. I got into yes. what's well, now Equinox, right? Yeah, he was always got playing into, there. That's right. What's that?
0: I remember he was playing there all the time, yeah
1: so i met him we were going at it and at that time i was actually working as a sports agent before i got into commercial real estate wow. and before yeah. i went overseas um after college like there was like a little break in between probably six to nine months and Irvin's yeah. like hey why don't you bring you and your guys and come start working out with us i'm gonna have a travel team this is the first year Irvin had his professional travel team okay. and i'm like okay he's like so meet me at the forum and i'm like Really? Like growing up as a kid watching Irvin and and the Lakers like I was geeked out. I was yeah, like honestly, yeah. I had geeked out. Of so course. I show up to the forum oh. and he's like go in the locker room, VIP, you come in, we're working out and I'm scratching my head cuz it's Irvin, Earl Curedin, John Long from the Detroit Pistons, <laughs> Kurt Rambis, Mark Aguirre, Lester oh Connor uh, and I'm like make no Blow mistake your mind. There's 16 of us out there. And I'll tell you a quick story, which is you'll get a kick out of. There's 16 of us. And so we start doing this three man weave drill. And Irvin's rule was the next group that went had to do one more than the last one. Of course, I'm in the fourth group. Yeah. Derek Martin was out there from UCLA. Yeah. Um, and literally, they do their whole sh- spiel. We're the fourth group out. We get to like 23, they did like 42. and we're falling out, like puking on the sideline in the trash can of the floor. And I'm, (laughs) he's like, all right, you guys move on. We're going to get into practice. But, I (laughs) mean, it's just like that's who he was, and being able to be and playing with the likes of Kurt Rambis and Derek Martin and Mark Aguirre, like legends when I'm growing up, being able to play with them. And then he had his first team, and he was paying the Reggie Theus, Remember, yeah, yeah,
0: of course. Legend. So
1: he's like, Hey, I'm taking 12 guys. I wasn't guaranteed lock. I was a fourth point guard behind Irvin, Lester Connor, and Derek Martin, all NBA yeah. guys. And here's this yeah. deep guy played, you know, basketball in college. And <laughs> I'm like, You know what? I got a job to go overseas, and that's a guarantee. So I'm going to take that job. So, yeah. um, that, that was kind of a quick anecdote anecdotal story that I thought was kind of interesting because that, that was, I was geeked out to be no mistake <laughs> about it. And to this day, <laughs> Like I ran into Irvin at the airport and my wife didn't realize that I, she thought I was BSing her a little bit, you know, to try and get her to go out with me and whatnot. When we were started dating and we get out of the airport and Irvin sees my wife with my, this guy, Marcel, who's a friend of ours as well. And he sees me, he goes, Mike. And I'm like, yeah, what's up? He go out, you know, bro hug, what's going on, safe travel, blah, blah, blah. And later my wife's like, so you really do know him? I'm like, (laughs) I'm not, like, I don't need to lie to you to try and
0: impress you. But
1: anyways, <laughs> that closed that was the
0: deal cool. for you. That might have gotten you engaged right there.
1: <laughs> hey, whatever it took, I was happy to get it because I was a lucky
0: man. Yeah, there you go. So jump into starting your career in commercial real estate. The, okay. You know, the struggles of how I realized how competitive real estate is in that yeah. particular business. But uh, why don't we talk about your experience of starting so i got real- started
1: probably in 1995 96 i think was the date so i've been doing this a long freaking time yeah right because we're in i can't believe we're in 2022 yeah here it's we go crazy um and i came back uh from playing overseas and i didn't know really what i wanted to do and my mom was friends with this gentleman who happened to run the western united states for cbre a gentleman by the name of george callis who Brett White, who's now the CEO of, of Cushman and Wakefield and has run that company for a long time. Brett used to work for George. And okay. George says, there's a lot of ex athletes in commercial real estate. And I didn't know
0: anything
1: about really anything what about it, commercial about. real estate was. I had no yeah. experience. Like a lot of people in our industry who are spoon fed or silver spooned. And hey, my dad did it and I got in the business and I have yeah. I didn't have any of that. So I had to work from the ground up and I started in a marketing research in, at CBRE. I did that for 18 months. And then if you work hard enough and a broker likes you, they let you do what's called running for them. This is before the wheel program at CBRE. And uh, Stan Gerlach, who I'm friends to this day, um, who actually attended my wedding, um, said, hey, you wanna run for me? And I think I made like $1,000 a month, maybe $1,500 a month. Yeah, you're getting paid. And it was like, and if you do some stuff, you have an opportunity to do whatever it may be. And um, so I did that for another 18 months yeah. and recognized what it was I liked to do, what I didn't like to do and how to do certain elements and then taking my discipline and my focus from athletics and applying it to commercial real estate. And I was fortunate enough, I think it was in 2000, 2000 to be CBRE's National Office Rookie of the Year. Good for you. Um, I did 520,000 gross my first nice. year in the business.
0: A big number. And
1: I didn't, I did 52 deals, a deal a week. And I didn't know anything about real estate, but what I did know was to bring people in who didn't know about it to make sure I could get deals done. Like I wasn't, yeah. I didn't have the ego going, no, 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 I got this. I can figure it out. I'm trying to bring people in. So technically I've been doing this now 20, if you count my, you know, when I started at CBRA, it's going on 25 years, but I guess actually on my own doing stuff has been 22 years. So yeah. Yeah. Um, I started CBRE. I was there for nine years, great opportunity. Um, but I kind of felt like I was coming up against a wall. So essentially you got the guys that have been there and the women that have been there for, you know, a hundred years on the back row at CBRE. And I had multiple discussions with people there about kind of progressing. I kind of felt like I hit a limit there. And then I had an opportunity to join a company. This was when Grub and Ellis was still around and Grub and in a, a boutique, firm that no one knew about called Newmark, um, out of New York had a small little office. And I did a deal with what happened to be my future partner for 12 years. We did a sublease together, hit it off. And, um, I didn't know what it was. I just knew there was something interesting about the opportunity. And everyone was like, well, why would you go to a company like this? when no one really knows about them. I just said, cause look, I, I like challenges. If I went to grub, it would have been a lateral move at the time. This is before all the grub and Ellis broke up. So I was at CB for nine. Was at Newmark for probably three or four years. There was a change in management, and they gave my ex-partner an opportunity to build the office. And so we grew the office over the next probably three to four years, and then we're in the in the red, and we got us we got into the black. Um, We started making money because we were doing things a little bit differently and focused and how we were going after business and ended up building the office from five brokers to 55 brokers and doing about 35 million annually in in net commissions. So um, we had that opportunity, did that for about 12 years. There were some changes that were was going on with a new mark, like in a lot of the big companies. there were some opportunities to go to some of their competitors, the CNWs, the JLLs, et cetera, that have been recruiting me for a long time. And NAI, uh, the guy named Rick Gold has been, who actually worked for my father like 40 years ago, had been recruiting me for 24 years. And it was like, hey, is there an opportunity? And there's some unique things here that were a little bit different. We're a global firm, but we're the largest independent network of companies. Um, which was very similar to how Newmark used to be when it was independently owned in New York. And there was all these different individuals who kind of run in the offices and there was a lot of similarities. And then I was approached by um, the president of NEI Global and started talking to their chairman as well. And there was an opportunity for me to become the vice chairman of global corporate services. And to me, that was kind of the, the apple. I took the bite of the apple that I really was interested in doing, I wanted to build something even bigger. And yeah, and that provided me the opportunity to be the vice chairman of global corporate services as well. And to me, that was like, hey, I, I know how to do what I'm doing, I'm good at what I'm doing, I can build this. And so now we have over 50 people on our team globally. Um, and my tenant consultant group that I have in NAI Capital regionally, um, we have, I have 15 people on the team. And so basically we collaborate, we share information, we talk about best practices. Cause to me, collaboration is the most important component of our industry. Cause everyone does everything themselves independently okay. and knowledge is power. And the more knowledge you share collectively, I think gives your client more information which allows them to make better decisions uh, because they have more information. And that's our job as brokers, in my opinion, is not to just kind of pass information, but provide them advice, consultative approach to talking about analyzing certain elements of, of leases or sales or whatever it may be, and then providing them the information to make the educated decision on their behalf um versus telling somebody why they you know you should do this or you shouldn't do that and not providing them the elements to support you know the documentation of why you're making these decisions very similar to residential i would imagine when someone's making an emotional decision for their families this isn't as emotional which i think why is there's a difference between obviously commercial and residential for and sure. commercial I think maybe a little bit easier um not financially speaking but from a, an emotional standpoint right, right. so numbers
0: um than emotion
1: like I'm running numbers six ways to Sunday and, you know, doing net present values on why this lease and what the lease and conversion to TIs and free rent. And yeah. there's a lot of financial due diligence that's involved. So it's not really an emotional component, it's much more of a financial decision. Yeah. Um, and great. so then I've been at NAI now yeah. going on my fifth year and, you know, we started our, our uh, global corporate services, probably we've doubled that in size. Uh, we've doubled revenue. Um, and so, you know, my goal is, you know, I think if you work with the right people and you have like-minded people who want to share information and collaborate, and look, I've always believed that fifty percent of something is hundred percent better than nothing. Huge. And so, definitely, in, in, in our in our business, it's really hard, right? So. What I find is you have people trying to solicit business, you have people who have to go win business, and then you have to work the deal. And it's really hard as a single person to do everything and support your clients the way it needs to be done. So that's why I like to have a team mentality because there's different people on our team to support the initiatives, very similar to the way these companies yeah. operate, You're not gonna have a CFO going to do all these other tasks that aren't under his, you know, focus of what his response or her responsibility is. So I use that analogy to say, we support you very similar to the way you run your business, where it's not just a broker going to find space. Any, frankly, person can do that, but we're shadow space. What are the economics that are going on? Why does this benefit you? What are the tax implications, the decision-making, et cetera? So.
0: Yeah, I think there's so many good points. I One of the big things I always talk to about brokers that are new or just building their business, like, hey, 100% of nothing is still nothing. So look right. to share and bring people in that can execute and that could get you the deal because so many brokers have this, you know, sink or swim, I got to hold on to the commission. And then you, you never rarely get the deal at that point. And uh, I think that's such an important thing in our the culture of brokerage, whether it's residential or commercials, the collaboration and realizing that, hey, look, there's it's better to get pieces of deals than to hold on and get zero and get nothing. So talk to me about some of the challenges that you faced in your business. What are some of the, the things that stand out. And I'm sure there's so many in all of our business and sales when it's eat what you kill every day is a challenge. Right. But, you know, there's some things that have stood out to you, like really rough times in the market or difficult cycles or experiences that you would say, yeah, this, this was a tough time. And how did well, you 2000, get through
1: it? 2007 and 2008, when we got what we call the dot gone business, yeah. when people were basically funding a lot of companies based upon prospectus and letters of intent of this is what we're going to do without determining that the actually the functionality in these businesses can work and perform. Um, That was a big blow to the market in 2006 and 2007. Um, The challenges I always like to tell my brokers is it's called professional persistence. And what I mean by that is how you follow up with somebody with value. Um, And, you know, three times Out of a hundred if somebody responds to you that's actually good and (laughs) if you pop three percent that's by the way people like are you kidding me like that's awful and i'm like it's really not awful if you're also targeting the right type of business like i do business plans with my brokers and figure out how they're going to make whatever money they want to make and how are you going to get there uh well i want to do this what are you going to do and so i've broken out our business into three components we have you know, sourcing business, which is 12 and a half to 25% of the business winning business is 30 to 35 and then working the deals 40 to 45. So there's a guideline for everybody. Even if you don't have experience, you can source business and make money, which is dissimilar to, you know, our industry where people typically can't do that. So if I can make 30% on 10 deals, winning business, I'm making, I'm fine with that versus doing a hundred percent of one deal. Like you just alluded to So, the challenges are how you deal with adversity, in my opinion. Like in yours, you do door knocking, like people are like, everyone has relationships, right? right? So, why are you different than your competitor? And to me, it's, I'm not calling somebody saying your lease is expiring, like I'm calling because there's value pursuant to something that's occurred in the building, a building sale. I know somebody's moved out, somebody put sublease space in the market. There may be rights that you have that you don't know about. There may be provisions in your lease that the landlord is supposed to provide you certain parking provisions and they're not. So you have a right to terminate. You don't know that and you use that as leverage. So I'm calling with purpose and to add value. Because frankly, when people cold call, call us, because I get cold called sure. financial services and whatnot, yeah, of course. You're like, oh, I have, I have a deal for you. And I'm like, okay, well, what's your deal different than anything else? And it, there's nothing really there if you can't differentiate because we're in sales. You better tell me what your value proposition is in 30 seconds or why I need to talk to you because I'm bu- busy doing my business. Yeah. So I'm trying yeah. to create that perspective for my brokers to realize you're just not calling somebody. I'd rather you call 30 directed, focused research people than 300 people to dial for dollars because I don't right. think that makes a
0: lot of sense. Absolutely. So that's a really good point. So so that I would—that's a good piece of advice. And my next question was going to be: So, if you have somebody who's either does either newer in the business or just building their business, what is some advice? Obviously, what you just said is is so critical. Rather, you focus on prospecting uh, warm leads or you know right. more research leads than just calling thousands of cold leads. I, I, anything and it's got to like be that? focused,
1: like, right, Danny? It's got to like if I'm going to make, let's say, seven figures a year. And I know that my time is spent only a certain amount that I can spread myself. I can't go after deals. that are going to pay me $10,000. I have to work on at least 10 transactions that are going to provide a six figure fee that I know, Oh, that's simple math. That's 12 deals. You do a million too whether it's a million dollars, $2 million, $5 million, right. whatever, whatever that math. is, you have to focus on how you're going to get to your end game. And that's one of the elements I try and share with newer brokers is, Hey, you want to make 100 grand if that's all you want to do, we're probably not the right fit because I don't want your goal to be 100,000 because you can do more than that. And then there's people I have a guy on my team who busts his tail, great person, went to Pepperdine, fantastic individual, very thoughtful, busts his butt and hasn't made a lot of money in the last you know 12 to 18 months because of COVID. That's yeah. something else we were going to talk about, like, yeah, I'd like trying to, to, to figure ahead. out how COVID is going to affect the office space and the workplace moving forward, and the challenges that we're facing. He got into the time when it's very difficult. Yeah. So timing's means another component.
0: So let's jump into the COVID, the challenges. You said there were some, obviously the dot. Mm The dot com uh, implosion. The dot gone. The dot gone implosion. But let's talk about now the world of COVID in office lease and people are now working from home. And now we're two years into it. And I've heard a lot of different things, obviously, you know, having, you know, my father in law, Jim Travers, and having conversations at dinner with him constantly. Mm -hmm. And the the takeaway, and you obviously would know more nuances, but the takeaway I, I found so fascinating was yes. What you think is happening is happening. These buildings are empty. Their people are not coming back, or at least it doesn't seem like it. But, and this is what I found so fascinating, but it's not like the landlords have said, great, we're now going to reduce our rents to attract people. We're just going to say we'll stay empty. And he right. told me that. I'm like, oh, my God. So guys like you and Jim Travers and the other you know, you know monster producers at Tenant Rep, where your whole business is trying to get value for tenants, and here we are with Empty Space, and I guess institutional landlords that don't have deep pockets that don't care that short term they're empty. So what is the challenges like for so, you guys now and over the it's last interesting two years? It might scent, be different now than it was two years ago, but talk us it's, through It's definitely
1: COVID. a little bit different today than it was two years ago when everyone yeah. was like, are we ever going to come back to an
0: office again? Right. Well, are we ever going to do a deal again? That's what we Are we ever going to gonna do a business. deal again? Yeah. And,
1: you know, I had a client, my first, our first year in a COVID. That was a national gym user. And fortunately for me, um, he had the vision to understand that he was going to expand and their business was going to do well. They had 40 some locations and now we're at like 45 or 47 locations. So we did like five or seven different leases in the 30 to, I think, 30 to 40,000 foot range, 10 year deals during COVID and people were like, you're actually doing deals. And that helped stay alive um, on actually doing deals. Now think I have savings and everything else, but uh, in investments, but you know, from an actual deal flow standpoint, things came to a halt. And so people were very concerned. Now you may or may not have heard this, but you know, Meta's, parent company just leased 600,000 square feet in Atlanta, a whole building, you know, Google has leased the Westside Pavilion 527,000 square feet you know, three around the corner from us. And they're going to be coming back to the office. Now that coming back to the office has been delayed uh, now with the Omnicom variant. But I think overall, you know, my projection is probably, I initially said, um, it was going to probably be second or third quarter last year of 2022. I honestly believe we're probably pushing that out to, you know, second quarter of 23, when we're going to see kind of some normalization, if you will. Uh, some people are projecting 24. I think omnicromps probably going to play out probably in the next, hopefully, God willing, knock on wood, you know, in the next two to three weeks as far as the numbers. But smart and astute companies. And firms are contemplating how do I take advantage of much lower economics? Whereas, you know, Century City, for example, deals are still getting done. Goldman Sachs just leased a floor, they moved out of Fox Plaza. Um, You know, all these law firms are either expanding or downsizing or what we call right sizing and trying to figure out, you know, how are some of these attorneys going to work from home for, you know, two days a week or three days a week. And um, actually looking at potential expansion or right-sizing, Paul Mitchell Systems, another client I have, you know, we had a full floor um, in Century City. We were going to, we were subleasing it for a while, decided to take it off the market because we were going to backfill it, because people are going to be using the space again. So we're seeing a lot of that as well sublease space where certain people smaller firms are saying hey i'm definitely not going to come back to the office or i need a lot smaller space and trying to figure out you know what are you know what is the philosophy of those particular businesses and then some of the elements having to do with covid are like how you're working within the premises are you an enclosed office is people are sure. like oh we need a smaller footprint yeah but you know before you we work? were back to right so before we were talking about like okay it's you know for an open workspace it's 36 to 60 square feet per employee and we're contemplating you know x as far as um uh how we're utilizing the space but now with actually having to use more offices to quarantine if you will people or people Uh wanting to feel safe now you're looking at those well you actually need more space because (laughs) you don't want the open space you need more offices back offices back to offices right (laughs) so that's another element that we're kind of dealing with and you know firms each firm operates obviously very different than one another and they kind of figure out how they work and. I come in with project managers and architects and we kind of help lay out the future of what the vision is or the business and if people don't have it people are doing short term deals. Like, I don't know where I'm gonna be. Can I do a year or two deal? And landlord's like, yeah, I'll do a deal with you because I know the market's gonna come back. It eventually does. And I do believe that we're gonna get over this. And people are coming back to the office. And, you know, people are saying, Oh, you don't have to come back. A lot of the, you know. Technology companies, but people are still gobbling up space. Warner Media, the Googles, the Facebooks, the, right, the
0: Fang the companies. Fintech
1: companies. Yeah, the Fang companies. So.
0: so, those big companies, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Netflix, the Amazons, are those huge? Because I'm hearing you mentioned one blockbuster deal, but I'm hearing the blockbuster deals they're doing. Are those the more long term, traditional 10, 15 year big deals they're doing? Or are they doing short?
1: No, those are long-term deals so because those a lot are of doing the, the big ones. Those are long-term deals. The The Google deal was an 11-year deal, um, yeah. as I recall. And, you know, in order for a landlord to fund TI and to underwrite it and get capital based upon how they underwrites are in assets, um, when tenants need certain things or certain items that they can and cannot do, especially if it's institutional grade, um of the way their loans are, are are written so hey we can give x amount of ti dollars or we can give you x amount of free rent because that's all we're and so all of it's a game they'll tell you one thing and you can usually you know juice them for a little bit more um and just play the game you know i look at a deal like a slice a, a, a pizza pie right every component you have free rent you have tenant improvements, you have operating expense exclusions, you have parking, you have rent. There's all these different variables involved in a deal that have financial ramifications. So figuring out how to slice the pie, so to speak, uh, and then providing clients with information so they can make those educated decisions. So whatever is best for their firm on a longer short term. I advise clients today, I think the market will come back. And if you're a a viable firm, our company and long term you believe that you're going to be around then we need to figure out how to take advantage of the market today before market rates do end up inching back up
0: yeah and what you're saying about it's going up i thought rates weren't really coming down but you're in some in no, i'm some not days-
1: saying rates aren't going up what i'm saying is that there's certain landlords for example like um the towers in in century city right so they at one point had you know over 15 full-floor availabilities in the project going back years and now they have one that's
0: what i've heard yeah
1: that's what right said. so there's no so vacancy. then you're looking at you got three floors at 1900 and then you got half a building at fox when disney moved out um the fox plaza old nakadomi plaza right from die hard
0: yeah um, die hard baby.
1: So, so there's you know there's that's probably the biggest vacancy in century city at this point is that project but there's a lot of activity as i understand it over there yeah. um you know you have rents in the high seven low eight dollar range at at you know at uh 20 at uh what is it uh 1999 so and then you have like the jmb development site that you know CAA had talked about doing basically they did their big extension, but it was only for four years. I don't know if a lot of people knew that or not, but that's in line with the development cycle for what JMB is going to do with their new project that has a vacant piece of land off of constellation. And they're projecting rents in the $10 foot range.
0: Oh. <laughs> wow. So if you look so- at
1: our rents historically compared to like New York and Chicago, yeah, you know, people are going, well, how do you survive at a $60, $72? And we're the only you know, we're the only uh, state that works on a, even downtown does annualized. We do monthly on the west side. Right. Right. So you're dividing everything by 12. 12 so if right. you're a $60 rent, you're $5 a foot, right? right. So um, it's just interesting. Every, you know, what, what I find is I try and find the, 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 the that one spot that a landlord has that whether their debt service is going to be maturing in a certain asset and that lease means something to them to go refinance an asset or there's some pressure point you have to be able to identify with different landlords so you can create that competitive leverage for your client yeah. and it's important that you have to identify what that is and most people don't know how to identify that they're like oh there's the comp well your lease deal if yeah. you occupy 15 to 20 percent of an asset it's going to have a much bigger implication than you know, a tenant that's 2,000 square feet, where a landlord, frankly, no disrespect to smaller tenants, doesn't really care. They're just, here's a deal I'm able to do.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, that's a very good point for, um, the separates sort of the boys from the men in terms of really knowing your craft. It's like, it's not just looking at the cops. There's so much more than that. And I said that at my business all the time. There's so many right. nuances and things that you can't quantify on paper that if you really know, the few that do know, like you and a few others that it's so much value Your you're bringing. yeah he'd be he may be one of them but it brings so much value in wisdom and it's not something you can learn or read or see in a comp it's just nothing to do with that uh yeah. that, that's a really huge thing for for people to understand why it takes so many years of doing this before you even have mm-hmm. a clue of how to start picking up these bits and pieces of nuances and expertise and uh that that's huge uh any advice you would give Sort of people getting into your business or starting out in your business now, knowing what you know now. If someone's coming out of school or they're you know getting into the business, making crucial, what what would you tell them? What kind of advice would you say? Hey, I want to. The get most
1: imp- the most important advice I would give is to make sure you're working with a mentor who's not just trying to grind you and you know be a you know a service delivery person for him or her. Make sure that you're creating value uh, that you're learning to work with someone who can create value for you and train you and teach you appropriately. I do cold calling with my people. In fact, I'm a little bit late to our call. Cause so I know we have a few more minutes left, but I have my team call that started at night or I do that, you know, once a month with my group. And then I have weekly. Don't, calls call, me, Mike, like don't do. call me, Mike. Don't cold
0: call me. Hang up the phone. Not calling you could cold call me anytime.
1: <laughs> I'm just going to call you on your cell. You <laughs> yeah, know. Perfect. Um, what I would say is if you're starting the business, don't cold call to cold call cold call with purpose. And if you don't know what you don't know, you don't know, right? So that's why it's really important to work with somebody who's a mentor that you can learn the business from, understand just the basic fundamentals of why people are doing certain things, because you have 30 seconds. I call it, you know, you have your elevator speech. You have 30 seconds to tell someone why they should work with you or what your value proposition is. And if somebody can't articulate that, whether you've been in the business, 30 minutes or 30 years, that's a big problem. If somebody is focused on deal flow and just doing deals, my opinion, that's a problem. You have to work with somebody who's willing to spend time and develop you. Like I do, we do, I have my guys do practice presentations and practice cold calling to me. I'm a C suite person, yeah, I'm an administrative person. Let's mm-hmm. talk about what those challenges are. And every call has value. That's the most important takeaway I share with people. Every call has value, whether it's a good call or a bad call. If I call somebody and and Bobby Sue or or Jim, you know, S- Simpson says, I'm not interested, it's like, okay, well, I'm I'm calling for this particular reason before he even knows he's not interested because he thinks he's or she's being cold called. So you know what? I totally understand. I get it. You're respectful. You have their name. So then you call back and say, hey, Bobby Sue or Jim Simpson. This is Mike Arnold. I called you two weeks ago. You said you weren't interested, but there was a unique opportunity I wanted to share that I think could create value for your business or your firm, specifically as it relates to your current occupancy in this project and some elements that are transpiring that have financial implications to your bottom line. And I like to share, you know, when I start talking about something that is important to me as a prospect, now I'm more interested in listening to what you have to say versus you just calling me because you have a lease that's expiring. Right. So being a focused approach to how you deal with prospects and then call with purpose and make sure you work with somebody who can give you some guidance and direction.
0: That's fantastic. I couldn't have said it better. Uh, I think that's so important. You can't learn this stuff in Harvard or, or Stanford. Business. Yeah. Go work on a team with some really good, knowledgeable brokers and you'll get an education. And it'll, it will take a couple of years, but what you'll learn yeah. will be invaluable. And I think yeah,
1: what you, you have to be do. able to stick it out and spend the time and have some wherewithal or some bandwidth to be able to, you know, deal with difficult times. Because if this was an easy business, everyone would do it. And so people are like, oh, real estate, you know, you make a lot of money and what do you really do? And, right. Okay. A lot of people don't necessarily value what we do. Like I work on an exclusive basis. Yeah. Someone's like, well, I don't want to work exclusively. I was like, well, if you have no one, want no one working, if you have multiple people working for you, you have no one working for you.
0: Nobody's. Yeah. Nobody's. Quiet. So I'm like,
1: Absolutely. I have to spend my time working with people who respect my time and my value the way I do. And here's what I do. And this is what I've done. And here's what I can offer you. and we start, look, I'm not saying you have to sign an exclusive day one. I have to, if I have to demonstrate some of my value proposition and my work ethic, I'm able to do that, but I'm not going to work months and months and months on a non-exclusive basis. If, you know, that's all we do is make money up when we make deals. We're not, we're not salary. we're commissioned people.
0: Absolutely. I love that. I feel yeah. the same way. That's, that's one of the negatives about uh, our business. My business maybe even more than yours where no one wants to work with a buyer's agent. They just want to go direct and they want you to bring them pockets. It's like, you know what? If there's no one quarterbacking the team, then there's no team and good luck. You know, And I can't tell you how many times through the years I get the calls after they've done the deal that they went direct and they didn't use me. And Oh, now I need your advice to get me out of this mess I made. And it's like, Okay, or the I better can. part,
1: and, and I don't know if you're an advocate or not, but I'm not an advocate of representing both parties, because I don't think from a fiduciary standpoint, one can do that. I know a lot of people do, and you may feel differently. No, it's um, challenging. I,
0: it's challenging, for sure.
1: But at the end of the day, if you look like an, an, a, a landlord agency agreement, it says a fiduciary responsibility, even if you disclose to the other party, you're representing both parties, it becomes challenging. Like, your father-in-law and I work this, do the same thing. Like... I can't let that landlord know that I'm going to make that decision to go to that building. I have three different landlords. I'm going to get paid wherever I go. So my responsibility is to my client, but if I'm representing the landlord and say, well, this is really their bottom line, is it really their bottom line? Like, are you going to leave that extra nickel on the table? And again, no offense to people who do both because I'm sure ethically you can do that, but in my business on the commercial side, it's very challenging to do. Yeah.
0: Well said. Hey, before I let you go, let me get your take on this is a, a fun, not a, it's a fun question. If, if for brokers expectations, if someone said, Hey, how long do you expect? How long do you think? How many years do you think a broker needs to put in before they can expect to really start creating uh, a real business? Do you have a timeline? I guess it goes along I'll, line of like some well, outside of code,
1: exclusive of COVID? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, if you do, and I have a I have a whole training program timeline what a broker's day looks like from 7 a.m to 7 p.m
0: yeah
1: and i find that i've found i was successful in doing it and i find people follow that plan i think i heard you 12, have them
0: doing dribbling and shooting for a couple of those hours <laughs>
1: well if they can't handle the rock you know how are you get <laughs> out the phone, right yeah. you got to be able to dial and have strong fingers yeah. to make those calls right yeah. um I, I find that it's probably a 12 to 18 month lead time some people will say longer um, I frankly believe if you follow a specific plan that I've implemented as exclusive of COVID that you should be making money in the first 12 months, there's no wow. reason
0: Okay. not there to you go. All right, man. Well, look, we've taken enough of your time. You got to go cold call and get things going, but great to see you brother. Well done. Great I just really to you. appreciate Thank you spending you. some time and good luck. I, I, you know, I apologize in advance for anything Travers says to you that may be offensive he means hey, well jimmy
1: had beats his own drum i love the guy he's the for best. who he is either you love the guy or you don't but you know what you can't but anything give respect to his fantastic career that he's had
0: yeah he's a legend he is what he he, no. he is who he is there's no change he is now,
1: who sure. he is jimmy i love you buddy
0: <laughs> mike thanks a lot brother we'll see you soon
1: all right take care danny thanks for
0: having me good job man that was awesome all right see ya.